Hello and welcome to another episode of the Old Lady Speaks podcast on Black and White and Red All Over. I am your host, Danny, coming to you after a week off for episode 53. 53. I think that's the number Claudio Marchisio wore when he first got called up from the Primavera. Don't hold me to that, but I think it is. So we bring back the number game for a week. How about that, Chuck? I'm sure one of us in our youth careers wore that number once upon a time, so let's just say like that. <laughs> All right, even though it's uh, the off, technically the offseason, we got a lot going on in Juventus land, mainly because Juventus has a lot of players at the Euros. So before we dive deep into that, let me bring in the crew here of Sam Lepressi. Hello, Sam. Can somebody find out where Patrick Vieira might be hiding right now and maybe discuss intensity pace and power with him because uh, <laughs> uh I, I i don't know i don't know man that was uh, that was a rough one <laughs> yes we we are recording for the record a couple of hours after france lost to switzerland so as i pointed out on twitter uh, drinks are on stefan leeksteiner tonight so chucks somebody who did not have a pleasant euro viewing in the round of 16 <laughs> hello well, up until the round of six. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, up until the round of 16, emphasis on that. Before that, it was all, you know, beer was flowing and, you know, celebrations were going. But yes, indeed, uh, after that, it wasn't, uh, wasn't all too good. But anyway, uh, glad to be here. And somebody who doesn't, I don't know if he has any horses in the Euro 2020 race, Sergio Romero. Hello, Sergio. Hey, fellas. Yes, I do. Switzerland, actually. Ah, I, yeah. I. <laughs> you did yeah, I, I noticed it on the Twitter on the Twitter machine. When, yeah, uh... I, I I lived in Switzerland when I was younger. I, I have a certain soft spot for 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 the team, and look, I, I'm just gonna come out and say it. Like Switzerland is, is 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 the definition of the B, like that B tier squad, right? Like they're always okay. They always make it to World Cup. They always make it to the Euros, and then you know just bow out gracefully in, in the round of 16 or whatever. Like that's what they do. That's, that's what they always do. And so it was really like, it was just fun. It was just nice to actually see them, you know, pull off the upset that they've been close to pulling off like a number of times, like when in the 2014 world cup, I remember they took, they took Argentina right to the brink, like right to the brink, like overtime. They were like a couple minutes away from PKs and then Angel Di Maria comes out with a great score and, and sends them packing. And that's been kind of their story, like ever since I started caring about Switzerland, I guess. Uh, so it was it was just nice to finally see that kind of group of, of guys that a lot of people had very high expectations, you know, with the Sheridan Shakiri and, and Granit Chaka and like that kind of golden generation that came from from Switzerland. They never quite managed to pan out the way a lot of people hoped they would. But still, like this is going to become their, their signature moment, I guess, of that group of players. And, and it was a legitimately good game, a legitimately good performance. Uh, sure, France had more chances, but it wasn't a fluke. Like they're, they're a legit good team. And I think, um, do I think they will win the Euros? No, but this is, you know, this is pretty, this was pretty nice as, as someone who, who likes Switzerland. I don't live and die by them, but yeah, the, I, I'm rooting for them. Well, now that we know of your newfound Switzerland, or I, I guess I shouldn't say newfound, it's newfound to maybe us, 
that explains the Granite Shaka tweet that you sent out right before we hit record. Yeah, I mean, look, that dude's <laughs> like he's in Arsenal. People like players who go to Arsenal, they go to die. Like you can't judge someone based on how they play in Arsenal. Like that's just unfair. And I <laughs> I saw him when he played for Basel. I, I see him in the Swiss national team. Guy is good. Is he gonna come in and fix Juventus midfield? No, but you know, you know, he's not bad. Like I, I wouldn't have been upset if he was like a like a low cost type of option. I, I stand by that take. I, I will remind folks that in the summer of 2014, Juventus were looking for a Torrequartista, and Jordan Shakiri was one of the names linked to Juventus. And every now and then when Switzerland plays, I look up what we wrote about them or wrote about him during that summer of 2014. And I personally wrote something saying Juventus should sign Jordan Shakiri. So <laughs> Chuck's is nodding his head like, you idiot, why did you write Hey, that? at least they're humble, man. <laughs> at, least, at least he admitted it. But I did hear, Sergio, you might know this. Uh, I believe in Switzerland's last four turn- major tournaments, they were ousted in the round of 16, ousted in the round of 16, ousted in the round of 16, and ousted in the round of 16. So this this time around, the round of 16 proved to be quite quite the opposite for them as we turn this podcast into nothing but Switzerland and Lichtsteiner talk. They're, they're the European Mexico. I hope that one day we can, <laughs> I hope that we can one day we can be like Switzerland and finally, finally break through. Don't they have, don't they also have the record of being the only team to ever be eliminated from the world cup without having conceded a goal? I Who, think Mexico that happened in two, that happened in 2006, I think. They won their group, didn't concede a goal in the group stage, and then played a 0-0 draw all the way to penalties in the round of 16 and got knocked out, I think, by Ukraine. Oh, who are we talking about? Switzerland or Mexico? Switzerland, yeah. Oh, maybe maybe Switzerland, yeah, because I, I remember clearly 2006 Mexico, and they definitely allowed some goals. Oh, yeah. But... <laughs> yeah, but that might have. That's, that's a very quintessential Swiss thing to do, just kind of like somehow not allow goals, but still bow out gracefully that that's that's what we do so you know so happy happy for switzerland all right well one of the teams switzerland actually played is one that there is a lot of rooting interest for both us and the blog in general and that is obviously italy coming out of the group stage they were one of the favorites to win the tournament because they absolutely uh, crushed their their three well maybe not in the last game but they played very well in the group stage and maybe not so much in the round 16 but italy has advanced so that means Juventus's Italy contingent are into the Euro 2020 quarterfinals, which still seems weird to say because it's not 2020. Not so much. Chuck's Netherlands are unfortunately out, as are Ronaldo and Portugal, as are, as of a few hours ago, Adrian Rabio and France. Alvaro Morata, the much maligned Alvaro Morata gets the game-winning goal and extra time for Spain, so I'm sure that had to feel pretty good. But overall, whoever wants to go first, your thoughts on the Euros so far? I think it. I, I think first of all, it really should be Euro with an OG at the end of it in parentheses because there have been so many own goals in this tournament. It's absolutely insane. I have I, I in a chat that I'm in. I haven't confirmed this stat myself, but I think I heard something say that. There have been as many goals, own goals in this tournament as there have been in the history of the Euros to this point. Yeah, I remember I think the there have ESPN. been nine own goals in this I, tournament. 
I remember the ESPN commentator saying something like that. Yeah, I think that, yeah. that sounds and about it's, right. Uh, and Italy being the beneficiary of the very first one off off the chest of, of poor Mary Demiral. But I, I th- there is so much open. Th- this tournament is now wide open. With France, you know, France was the pre-tournament favorite. They're done now. And every other big team has some potential weakness you know germany is is either hot they run hot and cold they could either be world beaters on one day or they're going to let in a bunch of dumb goals england has been surprisingly very stout defensively but with all that attacking firepower haven't done anything with it uh italy fantastic in the group stage woke up when they needed to against austria which was something that france did not do France rather pretty much collapsed because when you look at when you look at this and my anglophile wife next to me just kind of giggled when I said that but you know after Pogba hit that goal for 3-1 that should have been over that that was a crazy goal that you know and it's demoralizing when you when you give up a goal like that that's just hit so perfectly and there's nothing you can do about it and you go down two with 15 minutes left in the game and they and Switzerland score two that you know france just walked out belgium are potentially going to be missing two of their best players to, on friday against italy they also have a real history of uh, a real history of bottling it once you get once they get to this part of the tournament they've been fantastic for years now they've had a lot of real talent but they've don't seem to have that mental fortitude to get there this spain has a lot of flaws I mean, I, I personally think that whoever wins the Belgium-Italy game is probably the odds-on favorite to take it now, but things have been so unpredictable for the top sides that it's really difficult to say what's going to happen day-to-day. I mean, just to just today's matches, you know, We've seen two two goal comebacks late in the game to force extra time. It, uh, when you thought that the uh, that the the team that came back was dead and buried, so it's been really entertaining, especially this round. Uh, I mean, the only game that for the round of sixteen that really hasn't been particularly close was Denmark shattering Wales, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's it's going to be really really interesting to see what happens between between now and the end and uh june 11th when or july 11th rather when when we see what's going on because this is this is now anyone's tournament completely and utterly if you're hot if you're hot at the right time you're gonna win this whole thing yeah it's been it's been a wild tournament i mean today that really just capped it all off that crazy Switzerland France game because I'd actually <laughs> I think I've written in the comments and it's funny that nobody's nobody saw that which is which is good so I'm just going to out myself when the 3-1 was scored and France had all that momentum going for them I was like well you know France has all this momentum really can't see Switzerland going or um, coming from coming back from this one especially after the morale you know loss of morale from missing the penalty so I was like well I guess that's that Stepped away for 10 minutes, and well, guess what happened? <laughs> Sergio, would you like to laugh at Chucks because of that comment? No, I thought the same thing. Uh, 
I actually, the moment they, they miss the PK and then France like immediately ties it up. It's like, oh, okay, like here we go again. Like this is this is what we do. Like this is this is Switzerland, the Switzerland I know and love. So it was it was so I, I can't fault him for that. That was that, that was the general consensus, I would say. Amazing, I think, that the, the the other big takeaway from today's set of games with especially with, with France and Switzerland. How terrible a tournament Kylian Mbappe had after being, you know, the hero of the World Cup three years ago, or one of them for that France team. He was awful in this in this tournament. And to top it all to top it all off with a really bad penalty that was saved really easily by by Jan Sommer. If you want to get into the, you know, the if you want to be talked about as the god tier players, you know, the the Ronaldo, Messi, Neymar's of the of the land, that's a penalty you have to make. And, you know, five guys whose names I only partially know on the Swiss team held their nerve better than a guy who when Messi and Ronaldo are done is going to be in the running for the best player in the game. But if you're going to be the best player in the game, you've got to hit that. Yeah. To be fair. I mean, it's, I, I think it's a bit, it's hard for me to judge uh, players in this tournament uh, in general, just because of how long the season has been and just, you know, how congested the schedule has been and what a crazy year and a half it really has been. So I think a lot of players are coming, you know, with basically empty, empty tanks into this tournament. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I have some sympathy for them there, but you, have, you know, of course you're right. I don't know. I think it's just this tournament. I think it's just reminded us. And I wrote that article uh, on, um, you know, three reasons why international football still matters, but uh, yeah, I think I've just been reminded of how different international football is from club football because so for example, you know, you had, Italy that just blew away teams in the, in the group stage were, you know, absolutely fantastic. And then people think, well, okay, obviously they're going to win it. They're just going to steamroll over everyone. And then, you know, they nearly, nearly went out uh, against Austria. Um, that marginal offside on um, Arnautovic's goal, which was a really, really good goal, I thought. But, you know. Thank was, God for VAR. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which, I mean, I still have issues with VAR. But, but I mean, obviously that was the right decision. Just, just the right decision. Um, Next up from Chuck's why three reasons why VAR still sucks. <laughs> yeah, if I ever run out of content, then that's uh, <laughs> that's probably something I would write. Which hell, that's something I would want to write anyway. But uh, no, no. Which is as a completely unrelated note, Tim Vickery also hates VAR, so you know, Drink. not that it matters. <laughs> well, if, <laughs> yeah. if Tim Vickery hates it, then come on, then it's okay. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, Italy dominated, and then yeah, had that you know, nail biting. Uh, game against Austria and you know here's the crucial thing I think I mean this is you know we all know this but the, diff- the main difference is just that compared to like Champions League let's say you know in the Euros you the knockout games are all one one-off games and that just completely changes the dynamic of the tie because you know obviously the away goals have now been cancelled and we'll obviously we'll talk about that later but uh you know, two-legged ties versus one-legged ties. I mean, it's just a completely different dynamic. Um, you know, you manage the first leg differently from the second leg. And obviously, depending on how the first leg goes, you, you, you change your strategy. But you know that, okay, 
there's going to be a second chance. But in in these round, you know, round of 16 quarterfinals and in, in the international games, I mean, it's one off. It's you can play great for you can play great the entire group stages. And all you need to do is mess up 10 minutes of of, of a round of 16 game and you're out. And then it's like, you know, who cares that you beat Slovakia 5-0 or uh, Switzerland uh, 3-0, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and, you know, and, and they just, you know, walk through your group. Nobody cares because once it's around a 16, it's, it's all reset and it's all just a one-off game. So I think that really changes the dynamic of it. And that's why um, Caleb, you know, Caleb had that article on why, you know, why we should temper expectations on Italy which well, I mean, some people uh, were very opinionated about that, but I agreed with this overall point in just because of what I just said, you know, everything that happens in the group stages, it's basically irrelevant once the round of 16 comes along because it's, I mean, it's one off, it's 90 minutes. You can just, like I say, you can be lucky for five, 10 minutes of the game and then you're through, uh, you know, and it's, okay great that you you know blitz through the group stages then but it's it's all you know square one it's all it's all you know back to uh back to the start there and then i think that really is that that's something i realized just today like okay wow that's really that distinct difference between international tournaments and you know champions league uh football as well but yeah so i you know just wanted to shout out to caleb there as well and yeah like i said also just from the season being so long and just extremely uh taxing season on people uh, on players rather of just playing every you know three four or five days that is you know rough and maybe that's why we're seeing so many chaotic games i mean three three five three five no i mean just like i mean tennis scores we're seeing you know those are i mean very entertaining obviously but you know maybe that's part of it as well just the accumulated fatigue of of players coming into the tournament so uh, yeah i mean just some some general observations that I had anyway from international football and just from watching this uh, from the Euros and the Copa America, of course, as well. I know you're a numbers guy, Chuck, so I will throw this out when I saw saw this during one of Portugal's group stage games. Entering the Euros this summer, since Project Restart in England, Bruno Fernandes, who plays for Manchester United and obviously Portugal, he had played 84 games since the start of the restart in England. So if you just want an idea of how crazy the schedule has been for all of these players, there you go. Yeah. And, and he had a pretty bad tournament as well. So yeah, you know, there, there's that. <laughs> there is that. And I think everything, I think all, all of those factors, just the, the, the burnout, the short, the, like the, the compressed seasons, the just, and, and the inherent, unpredictability of tournaments like this in which you get a group of guys that don't always play together and and you have a few days to coach them up and then you go out there and you play like i think that's why it's it's so you know it's so complicated to predict this type of things and why almost every year in every single competition there's this like one team or two teams that just somehow some way are like in the quarterfinals or the semifinals and no one saw them coming because it's it's very very unpredictable like chugs was saying like you can have one bad day and and that's it and you're done and to a lesser extent because it is a, it you know champions league does have a, a two-legged uh, type of element to it but i think it, to a similar extent i think that's why you know champions league winning and and you know kind of bringing it back to to juventus a little 
why sometimes being like, oh, the, the objective has to be to win the Champions League. And of course, you have to try to win every single tournament you're in. But, you know, that's why it's so hard to really, you know, make that your one single goal and objective and, and you know, the, the thing that defines whether your season was a success or not, because everything can happen. Like you get one injury and that two leg tie, get one bad call goes your way and, and, and you're done. And it doesn't really matter if you maybe were the better team or if you weren't, you don't have a whole season to prove it. You just have that, those two games. And if your good players were out of form, if, if, you know, you had, like, like I said, an injury, a bad call goes against you, you're done. So, so it really, it, it does make it very interesting. It makes it very entertaining. And, and it just, I think it's going to be fun to see all of this, you know, the quarterfinals, the semifinals without all the usual suspects that we usually see there. So, so yeah, so far, I think the Euros have been significantly more enjoyable than, than I thought they would be. I, I was honestly expecting kind of like a sloppy tournament because of, of, of the burnout that, that Chucks was mentioning, but while it has been sloppy in some ways, it, it's been in general more like entertaining and just fun football to watch, really. Going back to what you were saying, Chucks, about, you know, international, the international game and how, you know, how different it is from club football. I was at Legends here in New York for the first match between Italy and Turkey. And our Juventus club and the AC Milan club that share our bar have been jointly organizing meetups for gate for Italy games. And it was amazing to be sitting in that tournament in that room, watching this game with a bunch of Juventini and a bunch of Milanisti. There were a couple of Napoli fans. There was even one inter guy and all just mingling together. And, and, you know, everyone locking arms and singing the Italian national anthem before the game and screaming and cheering and, and living and dying by this one team. It was, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's an atmosphere that is just so incredibly fun to be, you know, listen, you know, to be kind of unified with everybody and, and all cheer for the, for the one group, regardless of who you actually root for. I think that's, you know, anybody that says that that international foot, you know, international football can, you know, you know, they, you know, there are even some people that say that they just want it to end, that they don't want, that they only want to see the club game. Enough. This is this really is some of the this really is the best that you'll see. And actually, yeah, let me jump in there before we move on. That is a perfect segue into the article I wrote on the, on the three reasons why uh, international football still matters. And yeah, that, that was indeed one of, the, one of the reasons I stated, like, it binds a nation, you know, a club. I mean, club football, obviously, um, it has, obviously, it has its merits in the sense that it binds people across different nations into the same club. You know, you can be a Juventus fan, and then you can uh, sport events is you have an, uh, an Indonesian person, a Spanish person, American, Dutchman. I don't know. You know, you can have all kinds of people from different backgrounds. But um, yeah, international football just binds people in one nation. And even casual fans that, you know, maybe might not care so much about sport, they'll go and, you know, get out of the house and like join their friends to just cheer on. Not, not they probably don't care about the game they just care about you know okay this is my country so you know let me cheer on my country and i i think there's definitely something something beautiful to that 
especially in these times, you know, the, these politically uh, uh, tense times uh, that we uh, live in. And also actually in a uh, well, shameless plug for my book, but uh, in my book, I also wrote a um, brief, well, I wrote a chapter about this, but then in the chapter, I, um, I did a bit, a bit of research on just the number of countries that after like a big game, the president or prime minister of the country uh, declared like, <laughs> declared a, a, a national day off, a national vacation uh, after like their team won. And it was like, Brazil did it after they won, uh, won, won some, I think one of the World Cups that they won, uh, you know, many years ago. And Turkey did it, I think, in the, I think in the early 2000s in the World Cup in South Korea, I think when they had a good run. But yeah, just there's so many countries that, you know, can you imagine? I mean, a, an entire country being like, we're taking a day off because our team won a big game. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I, I, I can't think of other sports that can like bring a nation to a standstill over yeah over just a, a 90 or 120 minute uh event like that so you know there is some beauty to it and and i think it's just nice to appreciate that in uh, these uh, slightly more tense times in the world speaking of tense tense times uh we we had some tense times during a discussion on the blog relating to uefa's decision to do away with the away goal rule and i i think it's safe to say that a lot of people are in favor of it, knowing how kind of wonky, I don't know if that's the right word, but how interesting away goals can make things. So instead of away goals, basically UEFA has uh, now implemented two 15-minute periods of extra time if things are tied up after regulation. So Sam, I know you've been very outspoken and you are preparing something in more detail on said rule change, but in short, what are your thoughts on the decision to do away with the away goals i assume it's very positive it's about time uh, <laughs> and editing begins editing editing begins uh sorry but no it this i mean the away goals rule is an anachronism it's it's a product of a time that is long since passed it was created for two things one to avoid schedule entanglements when replays were the only way to decide drawn ties and two to incentivize the away team to attack because you know in 1965 when it was first implemented any travel around europe was a haul so you're all so you're getting to your game exhausted you're having to to adapt to styles of play that are completely foreign to you on the field because at that point ever well before the game was truly globalized everybody really was playing a different way and so yeah the away team would have a tendency to clam up and decide well we'll take our chances on the home leg and so that was it was an incentive to to attack for away teams at that point now not so much i don't think you're gonna see many modern managers you know the the you know the the peps and clops and 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 other managers like that of the world who are going to need incentive to attack you don't need a carrot in front of them they're going to go anyway and to say nothing of the fact that the rules kind of turned in on itself and now the home teams are always cagey because they don't want to let up the away goal that could decide the tie and at the end of the day it's not fair 
like goals are goals. And if you end up scoring as many goals as your opponent and you're knocked out of the tournament because of an arbitrary decision that a goal scored in one building means more than a goal scored in another building, that's stupid. And it's not fair when you have attained parity on the field. The game should be decided, the tie should be decided on the field. And that's why I think extra time and penalties, if you if it's still drawn after extra time, is the right move. This this is a change that will see the game decided by the players on the field in the moment and not by some arbitrary decision on what goal might mean more. I just I I've never thought that it was a good that it was a good rule. I, I've never liked doing the calculus of, you know, what what score means what. And now it's it's going to be simple. It's going to be straightforward. But I don't think it's going to make anything less exciting. I, I don't think it's going to change the way that teams approach two-legged ties for the worst. I think we're going to now we're going to see the real result done on the field with two teams that were even for 120 minutes and then the t- they, those two teams work to break that deadlock on their own and not by some arbitrary decision in a in a room somewhere in in switzerland i i, I think it's the best way that that uefa could have gone and it's a long time coming uh, I, I, honestly i don't feel as passionate one way or another for the decision. I think it was, you know, it, it is what it is. I, I never really, yeah, I never really cared. I, I guess I, I saw it as, okay, it's part of the rules and and you have to, you know, plan for it, right? Like I never thought, oh, it's, I don't know, 3-3 and someone scored away and then they, like, it's unfair that they did. It's like, well, that's not unfair. It's, it's, it's the rules, you know, the rules and, and you have to adapt to those rules and it is what it is. I, I, I don't particularly care either way, to be honest. I, I think it, the one thing I will miss about the away goal rule is that in a way it did give a, a, a bigger shot to underdog teams, I would say, because you did get this few times where like the, the underdog or the least favorite team would score away and it would give them like a, a better chance of moving forward. And in general, I like that just as, as, as a as a fan, not even football, just in general. I like giving, you know, the underdog more more shots. Uh, do I think it's going to change significantly? Like, I do agree with Sam on that. I don't think it's going to change significantly, like, how teams prepare, how teams play. I think uh, we might see a little bit more, you know, not – we might see a bit fewer of those mad dashes to the end when they – you know, when someone scored an away goal and now I actually need two goals. So I need to go all out to get those two goals to kind of like qualify to make it through. We might see a little bit less of that. Um, But other than that, I just don't, yeah, I don't think it's going to make that big of a difference one way or another in the large scheme of, of European football. Like I said, I would, I think that is going to affect a little bit like the underdogs because they, they, they're not going to get that like a little extra bonus if they get it when they're, when they're away. But, but yeah. And I guess in a romantic sense of, you know, old times, like defend your, your, you know, home grass, like 
keep a clean sheet at home, all of that stuff. But honestly, like, I, I don't even like, I don't, it's a take I don't really agree with, like, you know, whatever, just win wherever. So I don't think it's going to, to really change a whole lot, but it is going to make it a little bit different. Just, you know, one of those things you, that you, you get used to, I guess. We'll see in the next Champions League how, you know, how they implement it. And, and if, you know, anything changes, I'm sure, I'm sure that now Juventus will find themselves in the other way and we're going to draw and then go to PKs and lose. And in the previous system, we would have gone through on away goals and we're going to be like, oh, like, you know, we should have kept it. And like, it's going to happen because that's what Juventus does. But other than that, you know, I, I you know, I, I think it's a, you know, it's a change. And we'll we'll have to get used to it as as you get used to everything. Sergio didn't say it. Somebody was going to say it. <laughs> well done, Sergio. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you guys have basically said it all. Um, I, I guess I just have like three, well, sort of two things, two and a half things to add. One is if anybody has that type of time or is that type of research inclined person. This is a great, this in economics or in social sciences, this is what we call, call a great natural experiment. So this would be great for someone to study the effect, the causal impact of the away goal rules, because it's now you have a before and now you have an after. Uh, so, you know, yeah, before the away goals rule was scrapped and now you have after away goals rule scrapped. So this great data set for, you know, anyone that has that type of time to, uh, to study that so you know and actually on a side note as well also for i know there are people that did were trying to do studies on the impact of fans on like results on on football games and another great natural experiment which was well well great i mean okay in a tragic sense obviously but covid you know the covid enforced games of being behind uh, closed doors that create another great it's an opportune moment yeah yeah like yeah that. that's that's the way uh, yeah like again i want to be uh, you know sensitive to that but um yeah regarding the way goals rule i guess the only other two things i have to say is like sam said like you know at this point like right now at this point in time what problem is the away goal rule solving and i find it hard to really come up with a legitimate answer to that you know because obviously in the past like sam said it was you know a legitimate solution to a legitimate problem but at this point that problem has essentially i mean it's it's non-existent at this point just the whole travel thing you know and then just the the difficulty of traveling uh back in those days versus now i mean that, that's just not relevant now as much anymore obviously there are stadiums like certain fans at, at stadiums like are more intimidating to play at but that's the point was just the, the travel and the logistics you know and that i mean these days, that's just not an issue anymore. I mean, the ease of travel across Europe, across the globe, I mean, is, is just, you know, far greater. So there's that. And then also, um, I think the inherent beauty of, of football is just its simplicity. I think that's what draws people to, that has drawn billions of people to the game, just its simplicity of you know, of how to play it, of the rules, of just the equipment that you need. It's all just very, very simple. And yeah, again, a rule like that, the away goal rule, I mean, technically that kind of unnecessarily infringes on that simplicity because again, what problem does it solve? It doesn't, if it doesn't really solve a relevant problem now, then it's just, uh, it's just an extra regulation that 
reduces the simplicity of the game. You know, like like Sam said, you don't have to calculate all the, you know, uh, okay, who has to score now, how many and stuff. And it, it, yeah, it's if it's not a solution to a problem, then I think it's just an, un, yeah, an unnecessary addition uh, to the game. Which, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm generally in favor of just seeing it scrapped and. Like I said, I mean, I'm curious if any researcher wants to do that kind of study of seeing the impact on it. But uh, my theory is also like, like Sergio said, I don't expect it to have a significant impact, um, but let's see. All right. A couple of Twitter questions here before we get going. From at JuveFan1897, who should start for Italy against Belgium in the quarterfinals? I'm guessing that has to do with a certain Federico Chiesa and Berardi and a certain Manuel Locatelli and Marco Verratti. Well, in in the latter case, I'm hearing that it might actually be Nicolo Barella who gets dropped and Verratti and Locatelli will be playing in the same midfield or, or Piscina or something like that. As for the first one, that's a really interesting question, and I've been having lots of debates about it ever since Saturday. I mean, there is no question that Federico Chiesa has been playing fantastic at this tournament. He has carried over the form that he had uh, since he came back from that injury late in the season for Juve, and he has been exceptional. The goal that he scored against Austria in extra time was brilliant. And he and his father, Enrico, are now the first father and son duo to ever score at the European Championships together. Fun fact. But I can see several arguments for keeping him on the bench and playing Domenico Berardi. In the first case, yes, Berardi had nowhere close to the kind of game that he had in the two group games he played. He was also playing against David Alaba, who is one of the best defenders in the world and who had an excellent game even by his standards on Saturday. He Berardi would not be facing a fullback that good the rest of the tournament. So I I can see potential for improvement for Berardi in the quarterfinals and beyond. Also, when it comes to Chiesa, to have a guy with the skill and talent and form that Chiesa is in coming off the bench against tired legs in you know midway through the second half that is a sledgehammer of a move to have in your back pocket if you're Roberto Mancini and frankly if I'm the man if if I was him I actually might lean towards keeping it that way because if you need to change the game on a dime you can do it in a in a second with with the way Kies is playing right now and putting him on against against somebody that's already been playing for 60 minutes and and it definitely should be it and it it definitely can and should be argued that Mancini should have done it a lot sooner on Saturday but yeah that that's my take I I definitely think that I I think it would be really interesting to to keep Chiesa on as the super sub and and see what results that brings yeah I mean I think largely agree with that I, I think the only general answer I guess the general answer I'll give to that question is Belgium are a really, really, really good counterattacking side. So I I think the team you want to set up, or Mancini, the, the team he wants to set up, would be basically a team that can at least nullify or just reduce that counterattacking threat. Um, I don't know exactly which players that would be, but I think that would be my main concern of just how good they are at counterattacking and making sure you have a team that, that, that can at least kind of handle that 
to not get completely blown away on the counterattack with that. But um, yeah, again, I'm not sure which players that would be, but that would be my main concern. Yeah, as someone who doesn't like doesn't really care one way or the other whether Italy does well or not. <laughs> yes, uh, you do. <laughs> I, I, I just hope they they shelve Locatelli. I just don't want to see him play anymore. I I I I. I, I He's good. We all know he's good. We don't need other people knowing he's good. So <laughs> I, I, I just don't really want, like, when this tournament ends and, I don't know, Italy's champions and Locatelli played a big part in it. And then the Chelsea someone is like, oh, we have, like, 70 mils. You know, just, like, we're going to buy him now. And, you know, we're screwed. So I hope all I want is, you know, yeah, start Barati. We're not going to get that guy anyway. So, you know, I'm, I'm fine with that. I, I'm just doing it selfishly. Yeah, to me, everything changed once the uh, once the English media got on the hype on the hype train with Locatelli. I was like, oh god, now the English are on it too. God, I knew everything was gone then. I did love one of the best memes of the tournament was uh, a wedge of Locatelli cheese three, a wedge of Swiss cheese zero. Uh, halfway through the group stage, that might have been the best meme of the entire tournament. All right. Next one here is a, a two-parter. First first part from at the true ROAC. Chucks, how are we feeling about the Netherlands? Does Deluxe's post-game comments solidify him even more as the obvious choice for Juve's captaincy? And from at Viola underscore Nation, not sending in a question. I just want to hear Chucks rant about the Netherlands. I'm more diplomatic now that I'm, <laughs> I don't know, older, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I've, uh, I've calmed down a little. Also, I, I don't know, I think, I forget who I mentioned this to. I've, I've tried to get emotionally a little less invested into the game because, man, to me, this is completely off topic, but to me, like, the Juve-Real Madrid, the, the time that we came back from 3-0 and then, you know, um, went out on that penalty, and the Juve-Ajax game, those two moments were, like, just so painful to me that oh man those those two games were were the days i realized like man maybe i'm a bit too invested in <laughs> into this game so yeah it wasn't wasn't very good for me so i kind of you know kind of took a step back but i mean obviously i still follow it and love the game yeah in terms of the lift i mean it clearly was his fault i mean he slipped on on that red card he slipped and then like i said he pulled a chiellini or like you know we were talking about that pre pre-recording uh, i mean he pulled the chiellini right there Sheik had a little bit of contact with him but i mean it, i don't think that was enough to justify his handball so i think that was just you know fair decision um, although that said i mean i think he had a good tournament overall i mean i think in the group stage he was good in the game against czech republic he was frankly quite good as well it, it was just that one moment and that goes back to what i said about you know the type of sport football is you can be great for 99% of a game or tournament, whatever, all you need is that one moment to screw it up. And then, I mean, that's it. You know, And that, that was kind of the case against the Czech Republic for the Netherlands. And uh, yeah, it just sums up the sport for me. But I mean, I still have faith in De Ligt. I think I still think he's, I mean, he's an excellent defender. Yeah, I mean, he has an error or two in him once in a while, but I don't know. I, th I still think his form when he doesn't make errors is still more than good enough to justify, you know, okay, maybe not justify the huge, huge transfer sum that we paid for him and the pretty, pretty big wages we pay him, but still, I mean, he's just, he's still an excellent defender. And uh, I mean, he'll, he'll learn from this, but again, obviously he's only 21 and especially as a defender, I mean, you really only hit your prime as a defender in your late twenties. So 
you know, I'm, I'm not too worried. But yes, the checks were better. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, they were, you know. And I mean, I guess just on the Netherlands, after it's funny. the red card, they were. I mean, oh yeah, yeah. You guys were doing. You guys were. You guys had the better well, of that game. I thought before that. Well, I mean, I guess I'll elaborate on the game a bit. Um, I think now we're now we're in, getting them fired up. <laughs> I think in the first half, Holland were probably better in the first half, but it's still they had zero shots on target the entire game, and the red card only game came in the fifty fifth minute or something like that 50 something minute so yeah you know they had zero shots on target so i thought they were controlled overall i mean they controlled the game relatively well in the first half but it just was pretty sterile stuff and even in the group stages i thought they weren't all that brilliant really i mean okay north macedonia they beat them was three no but i mean that was a dead rubber by then they were they were already first uh, the game against Ukraine, I mean, they were inches away from screwing that up. Uh, really, that 3-2 from Dumfries was, I mean, poor goalkeeping, I thought, on the header. So that, frankly, should have been a draw. Uh, and then the game against Austria, that was, I mean, that was a controlled game. It wasn't spectacular, but clearly we've seen Austria pretty good. Um, so, you know, that was, I mean, I think that was just a controlled, uh, you know, solid but unspectacular game. But again, it's a thing of like, you know, they won all three games. People were like, oh, is this uh, is this the time for the Netherlands to, you know, uh, throw in a surprise? I was like, I mean, they, let's let's see. You know, I wasn't really buying into the hype yet. And, well, clearly, uh, I guess I was unfortunately right <laughs> somehow. But Certainly um, <laughs> a wasted opportunity seeing as how you guys were very much on the easier side of the bracket. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they could have, I mean, they could have quite feasibly reached the final, I think, if they, you know. Yeah, again, they would have played Denmark. I mean, that that's a winnable game. And then England or Germany or Sweden or Ukraine. Uh, I mean, they, yeah, they could have feasibly reached the, reached the final with a few lucky breaks, but they didn't, you know. And again, that just sums up football. But um, I mean, I think they have a good core at the side. I mean, Frankie de Jong, obviously, and just a lot of young players. Dumfries, Malin, who's really not a center forward. He's more of a wide forward, but you know, whatever. Yeah, they've got a very good, you know, core to side. It's just, uh, yeah, figuring out how they all fit together because, um, and I'll end my rants now, but I think the biggest, one of the biggest deals or the biggest talking points coming into the tournament was the switch from the 4-3-3 to really what was a 3-5-2. And I mean, in Holland, like the 4-3-3 is sacred. It's more sacred than like, I mean, a golden cow or something. I mean, it's, it's the most, you know, prized formation in in the history really of dutch football uh so switching from that to what was perceived as really a more defensive formation or more cautious formation was yeah it was a big deal i mean people thought it was kind of admission an admission that holland weren't as great as they used to be which they aren't so it was almost like okay we're gonna give up and just kind of try and get one goal here one goal there and just defend which is unlike unlike Holland. I mean, it's always all guns blazing. You know, it's it's Arjen Robben, it's Van Nistelrooy. I mean, it's all you know going forward. But I thought it was yeah pragmatic. It was it was kind of like in the World Cup of 2010 when there was the four two three one and also just a you know two shield in front of the defense. So I mean, I don't know. Will they stick with that three five two? Will they go back to three four three three and more expansive style football? I don't know. I mean. Who knows? Do you think that that has to do with the fact that there really isn't like that kind of Van Nistelrooy, Van Persie type number nine that yeah. that you've had in the past instead of Depay, who's 
you know, in a four three three would very much be the false nine. Yeah. And yeah, and yeah. you know, isn't quite that that kind of Uber, you know, that guy that you would expect to get the goals as opposed to a guy like that had been in the past for you guys? Yeah, true. Yeah, I think there's definitely yeah, that, I think that's the big part of it. Uh, because now I mean they've got quite a bunch of wingers. Uh, you know, Mal- Maligan, I think, is more of a winger than a center forward. Uh, very good, though. I, I think he's, you know, he's a very good player, but um, he's still pretty raw, still young, but I think he's going to be an excellent player in the future. The Pai, he's not, you know, again, not out and out center forward. I mean, you got Vechorst and uh, De Jong, Luke De Jong. Uh, I mean, Luke De Jong is getting old as well. I mean, he didn't really have much of a season at Sevilla uh, this year. And yeah, Vechorst is is. Good. I mean, I admit he's still very good, but yeah, I mean, he's basically the only one then, you know, I mean, he's really the only true number nine for the rest. He's just got yeah, a bunch of wingers to buy uh, Mala, Berghaus. Yeah. Those are all indeed more wingers than, than yeah. Center forward. So I think that's, that's part of it. Just more of a player's first approach rather than a system's first approach, but yeah, if they can get that, you know, quality, like world-class number nine, I guess it's kind of like with Spain, you know, they, have Morata obviously I mean he's you know had his trials and tribulations but besides Morata they don't I mean I guess they don't really have a number nine either but yeah thankfully Morata is a little better than uh, what uh, what the Netherlands has from at Phil Juve fan who's been your most impressive Juve player so far at the Euros probably Chiesa I'd say yeah I mean just because there haven't been that many really um, which is un- un- you know unusual I could definitely say who the worst one was, uh, which is Damian. Woj has Woj has a, a claim on yeah. for that as well. Unfortunately, I mean, yeah. it's it's partly the partly the fact that he just has a, a substandard defense in front of him for this level. I mean, they're relying on Camille Glick as their top center back still, and that's just laughable. But yeah, Chiesa, I, Chiesa's got to be up there. Very small sample size for Kulusevski, but he did have two assists in that last game for Sweden that that secured them the top of that group. Yeah, and and Rabio's had a, a a decent tournament. He he wasn't the at at his absolute best today, but you know he was playing as a left wing back, which is not what he does. Also, please let's let's hide that tape of him playing as a fullback and a wing back from Max Allegri. Because we all know what's going to happen if he gets a hold of that, but uh, and and you know Ronaldo could very well still end up being the top scorer in the tournament if if Lukaku if Belgium goes out and Lukaku doesn't have uh, doesn't have anything else. So you know you can always say that, you know obviously he he didn't have the opportunity to go out and play the final himself after getting hurt last time, but you know from a, a pure, pure goals production standpoint, he was, he, he was fairly successful, but I do think you're right. I think Chiesa has been playing the best out of anybody, but if Kulusevski comes on tomorrow for Sweden and, and has himself a time again, he, he might also get up onto that level. Actually, I'm going to, sorry, before you jump in, Sergio, um, I'm going to kind of reverse my answer. Actually. I think actually Morata has been really quite good. I mean, okay. Yeah. He's missed chances and stuff, but he has helped and, you know, Semperti has been, you know, tooting the Morata horn uh, very loudly in the comment section. So shout out. But I mean, I think with good reason, once, you know, once I kind of, and it is kind of a paradoxical thing. It's like, oh, he doesn't score goals. That's his job. But indeed, I mean, okay, he hasn't 
he's only scored, you know, two goals, but his contribution to the team has been really, really good to Spain's team, uh, to just the Spanish team in general. And yeah, I mean, he's been unlucky and obviously he's gotten a lot of abuse, but I think just in terms of his contribution to the team, I think he, yeah, has been really excellent. So, uh, uh, oh yeah, and on Rabio, I think Rabio has been just unlucky uh, given that, you know, France had all those injuries, so he just had to be shunted out to left wing. Yeah, I, you know, it's, I tend to agree with, with what you guys said. I also, you know, if I had to name one guy, I'll just be because of production's sake and, and because Federico Chiesa hasn't really started all, all the games and hasn't been as key, I would say, to the team. Uh, I would have to go with Cristiano Ronaldo just because of, of the goal scoring ability. I mean, the dude just scores, you know. Call him what you will, call him like Penaldo and all of that stuff. Like the dude scores. Like you don't, you like he is now the all time leader in international competitions. Call him what you want, say it's all tap and say it's all penalty kicks. You don't get to that level without being really, really, really freaking good. And, you know, despite, you know, Portugal not really having, you know, as, as much of a Cinderella run as they had last Euros, I, I would have to, you know, go with him as, as my, you know, standout for all the all the Juve players in the Euros. Uh, with that being said, I've been much more impressed by all the dudes we, you know, we had once upon a time and we don't anymore. Like... Leonardo Spinazzola has been fantastic for Italy. Like that guy is talk about really that. good. <laughs> like uh, he's been really, really good. And Luca Pellegrini, we still don't know if he is good. Um, you know, Paul Pogba, you know, wow. Like he had a great, great tournament, great game today too. Even, the, you know, despite, despite, uh, you know, France getting knocked out, he had a fantastic game and then, if, if there's even an inch of truth in those rumors that they're by, like there's a you know p- possible swap between Pogba and Ronaldo, you do that like tomorrow. I don't think that Man United is is that short sighted, but you know who knows. Uh, but yeah, I mean it's just be- seeing all those guys that it's like you know Pogba, whatever he wanted to go a little bit, but you know the Spinazzola one is like oh man, we had that guy and we just gave him away for nothing. So. Yeah, I've been very impressed by by him just kind of looking back and, and thinking, oh, well, what could have been? But, but yeah, going back to, to the actual question, yeah, I, I still go with, with Cristiano Ronaldo just because of, of, of his production, just because of, you know, dude can score. Just for the record, he is the all-time men's scorer of international goals. Yes. Very surprised nobody said Aaron Ramsey playing as a false nine is the most impressive. Cracking player than Ramsey. Cracking player. <laughs> <laughs> Real Madrid. Are you listening? That was and, and it, that was the Aaron Ramsey's tournament. What that, that really was Aaron Ramsey in microcosm, wasn't it? Because he had a, a decent game in the second in Wales, the second game against Turkey, and, and was completely anonymous the entire rest of the time. Like you know, one out of four. That that's I what he to... is. He's he's a one out of four guy. I try to forget Aaron Ramsey exists just as a whole. So, you know. Aaron Ramsey also disproving your theory, Sergio, that people get better when they leave Arsenal. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, there's a, what's that saying? Like the, the exception that proves the rule or whatever. <laughs> he is that's the Aaron exception Ramsey. rather than the rule. Yeah, exactly. So there we go. On, on that Aaron Ramsey note, we'll wrap things up for today. As always, you can send us Twitter questions at Juventus Nation. And also... To help out Sergio Romero, please 
please feel free to send us some mailbag questions as well. You can either leave those in the comments section or send us to them on Twitter, however you so like. So as always, you can follow us on your usual podcasting platform, whether it's Apple iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you are a subscriber or listener on Apple Podcasts, feel free to rate us and leave us a nice review. We would much appreciate it. So for Sam, for Chucks, and for Sergio, this is Danny saying thank you very much for listening. And we will talk to you guys next week.